Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Simon. Today I'm delighted to say we have a special guest joining us. Ellen Schrecker is a professor of history emirata at Yeshiva University and the author of numerous books including No Ivory Tower, McCarthyism and the Universities, Many Are the Crimes, McCarthyism in America and The Lost Soul of Higher Education, Corporization, the Assault on Academic Freedom and the End of the American University. And her latest book, The Lost Promise, American Universities in the 1960s, which is the subject of today's show. Ellen, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Ellen, can you start by introducing The Lost Promise to our audience and tell us how you came to write this book? Sure. Um, this book is rather long. It's about... Uh, maybe 500 pages of text. And what I realized about it when I finished it was that it was the middle volume of a trilogy that I had written. And a trilogy that looks at the politics, the political history of American higher education from the end of well, from the McCarthy period, that's my first book, No Ivory Tower, to what was contemporary 10 years ago, uh, which is the third volume of the trilogy, The uh, Lost Soul of Higher Education, Corporatization, The Attack on Academic Freedom, and The End of the American University. And this book, The Lost Promise, is the middle volume of my trilogy. Little did I know that, that I was writing that, but I think in retrospect, what I was doing was writing the political history of American higher education after World War II to the present. And so that's where that book uh, is. It's not where the book started uh, and where my earlier work started as well. Uh, I was trained uh, as a European historian and I wrote a PhD history on an, my PhD thesis on a really boring subject, the French debt to the United States after the First World War, and realized by the time I finished it, which was like, you know, 13 years after I started graduate school, I really wasn't too much into it, uh, that I didn't want to be in European diplomatic history anymore, thank you. And so I sort of floundered and eventually ended up teaching freshman composition class uh, in, at Harvard in which you could be giving a kind of little mini seminar on any subject you wanted, as long as you were uh, grading the student's work. And so I decided I write, I teach the course on the 1950s. And this was in the mid seventies that I was teaching and uh, discovered to my horror, though I had lived through the 50s, that there was no book that I could assign my students on McCarthyism, nothing. Um, you know, there, there were memoirs, there were some very good monographs, excellent monographs, mainly by um, legal scholars, 
but uh, nothing that could give them a sense of what McCarthyism was. And so for a few years, I'm sort of reading and reading and reading, looking for stuff, and finally decide I'll, I'll write the book. So I got a fellowship, I was very lucky. And um, then people kept saying, Ellen, that's too big a topic, narrow it down. And so I decided, I, I love looking at your smile here when I give sort of the perspective of the, of the graduate student, no doubt. I, I can definitely relate to some of these things for sure. <laughs> yeah. I make my, my students and I teach writing composition uh, for first year historians at UCL and um, I make them do Christmas film studies <laughs> in <laughs> class. They, they were really into it though. They, they enjoyed it. And you've got a lot of stuff. And we'll sing White Christmas together. Yes. You and me and Bing Crosby. Anyhow. The dream. Yes. Anyhow, uh, what um, happened then was, okay, I had to narrow it down. And I realized what I wanted to do was either a city, just take a city, at the time I was living in Cambridge, I thought I should do Boston. Luckily, I didn't, because uh, that was the wrong city to do. I should have done Pittsburgh or Detroit, but that's another story. Anyhow, um, but I decided to do a occupation, an institution. You know, I could have done the legal profession, I could have done the medical profession, but I knew the university, that's where I was. So I did universities, and that turned into my first book about McCarthyism. And then I finished that and there was still no general book. So I wrote a general book on McCarthyism. And then I decided I was tired of, after doing this, and this must've taken me almost 20 years to produce these books. I did a lot of research, especially a lot of interviews. I love doing the interviews, you know, and hit people who had never, talked about what had happened to them during the McCarthy period. You know, they're giving me their deepest secrets. It was really useful. So um, then I got really into working on academic freedom a lot. And that was my second book uh, about a contemporary academic freedom in the early part of the 21st century. And being a historian, I thought it was important to look at um, the previous decades and get a little historical background. So I figure somebody's written about the 60s the way I had written about the 50s. Well, nothing, nothing. There, was, there were books about individual institutions. There were tons of memoirs. There were books about a discipline. I mean, there's even a book about just about Chinese uh, scholars and uh, in the 60s, but no overall view of what was going on on the nation's campuses, even though during the late 60s, certainly it was always front page news. You know, when the students took over the five buildings at Columbia, it, there would be three articles on the front page of the New York Times. Now that was because the publisher was on the board of trustees at Columbia, but nonetheless, you know, this was what people were seeing on their TVs every night. Students hanging banners outside windows. So, and being beaten up by the cops. 
if they weren't being shot by the National Guard. So, you know, this is pretty central to what was going on in America politically. And it was certainly central to what was going on in higher education. And yet there was no general book on that. So again, I had to do it. And <laughs> what I, it took me about 10 years. I must have done at least 100 interviews. Um, I hit at least 20 college archives. I didn't do as much as I could have. I had certain domestic problems that I had to deal with. But nonetheless, um, the uh, final product uh, came out in December. And um, that's what I wrote the book about. And, um, you know, ask me questions about it. That's how it. The other thing, actually, there's another piece of it, which is that I, of course, lived through the 60s and I lived through the 60s on some very elite campuses. Uh, I was living first in Cambridge at, and was a graduate student at Harvard. Then at, in Princeton, where my ex-husband was on the faculty. Then he didn't get tenure. He moved back to the, uh, we moved back to Cambridge. He got a job at Brandeis. And all this time I'm working on my thesis on the French debt to the United States. But I'm in these rather rarefied institutions and following them very closely. I was, I was very political. Um, even if I wasn't a major activist, you know, I had two babies, I had a whole lot of other things going on in my life. But uh, I um, hung out with people who were doing very interesting things in the 1960s. And so kind of I was, there was a period in which my whole generation, I had a lot of friends who started writing their memoirs. And I realized I did not want to write my memoir. I was not a major figure, but I hung out with really interesting people. And I thought I would write a kind of, if I'm, I didn't want to write a memoir, but I wanted to write about what I had experienced in the 60s uh, historicize, contextualize my own life. And so what I, what I decided to do was really look at what faculty members uh, were doing in the 60s, especially left-wing faculty members. I was on the left. Uh, these were people who were involved in um, takeovers. These were people who were involved in developing new fields. Uh, and these were my friends. So that um, it's kind of a, the, the name of what I was doing was a prosopography, which is a uh, group biography. And the group was my particular uh, cohort, my intellectual academic cohort uh, in the 1960s. And then what happened, uh, and I'm not giving you a chance to ask me questions, but then what happened was as I started working on this, um, I discovered that I couldn't just write about left academics. I had to put them in their context. I had to look at administrations. 
I had to look at the work they were doing. And so the book just kept expanding and expanding and expanding um, until I realized what I had written was a political history of universities in the 1960s. But, you know, you can't give it a title that way. So, could you, could you talk us through the title of your, your book, the, the Last Promise, and kind of explain yeah. what that is? Yeah, well, maybe I will tell you what I really wanted to give it as a title, okay. but <laughs> nobody, no publisher would have published it. And that was called Campus Interruptus. Hmm. Why wouldn't they publish that? That's a great title. Well, yeah, but uh, it didn't fly. I, <laughs> And anyhow, so um, me and my editor, we must have spent so many hours trying to find a title. Uh, and The Lost Promise really explains, it ties it to the present. You know, um, what we were, what I'm looking at is what is known, um, especially among civil rights historians, as the long 60s. We're talking about the period really from, you know, could be World War II or it could be Brown versus Board of Education, but it's the moment when politics and the big question of racial integration uh, comes to dominate higher education. And um, it goes through the entire decade of the 60s and really sort of ends in, oh, I'd say about 73, 74 with the uh, start of an economic crisis, the beginning of uh, austerity. Up until then, the uh, American universities have been expanding and expanding enormously. And that's sort of one of the main themes of the book. Uh, what I'm looking at is the intersection of this enormous, huge, and very rapid expansion of higher education, of a moment of inclusion. They're trying to democratize it. This is, of course, the first time that American higher education desegregates. Up until then, you, uh, up until a really uh, about 1967, there are only token teeny weeny numbers of black students in uh, majority white institutions uh, all over the United States. I mean, my class, I graduated from uh, Radcliffe in 1960. There were, as I say in the book, uh, two black students in my class. One was from the Caribbean, so she was a foreign student, and the other was passing as white. So, uh, you know, the, it was really a segregated system of higher education, uh, both in the North and in the South. And so that in and of itself would have created uh, a certain, what should we say, number of issues uh, and conflicts. But in addition, there's this huge expansion of new kinds of people coming on to campus, um, new uh, ways of doing uh, research, uh, institutions are changing themselves. 
uh, one thing that's happening is the imposition of a kind of research-heavy model on all of American higher education and a drive for status uh, so that uh, like uh, sort of at the bottom level, a little bit above um, community colleges were teachers colleges. And in the 60s, many of these teachers colleges then decide they're going to upgrade themselves and offer a four year liberal education. Uh, you know, it would be four year of liberal arts. But then after a few years of that, they need to upgrade even more. They begin to offer master's degrees, they become universities. Um, and so everything is expanding upward and uh, getting bigger and bringing in new types of students and new values, new academic values. You know, you can't know, you can't be a serious student anymore and get a gentleman's C. You know, it, the values are changing. Uh, at the top in the elite schools in the Ivy League, for example, it's um, say that talking about Philadelphia, the University of Pennsylvania uh, was a kind of fraternity uh, dominated student culture. That ends, it becomes much more about serious academics as well as fraternities, but um, the culture changes. The faculty changes. The faculty is much more serious about its research. Um, and students in the 60s, uh, you know, I would find these amazing stories of people. Uh, well, what else am I going to do? I'm a good student. Of course, I'm going to graduate school and get a PhD. And they're throwing money at you. That's what happened to me. Um, I was going to be a high school teacher graduated in 1960, women were supposed to get married. I was assuming I was gonna marry somebody who'd been to Harvard, big status, right? And uh, what did I do? I married somebody who'd gone to Penn, couldn't believe it. But anyhow, <laughs> um, it uh, was a very different uh, kind of school by the mid 60s everywhere than it had been even five years before. And those changes were uh, what made the 60s the 60s. Plus, and then I assume you were gonna ask me this question anyhow, how does the Vietnam War play in? Sure. I mean, I'm all in favor of you interviewing yourself. That absolutely works for us. That, that's. Uh... I could listen to you for hours. So wherever you want to go with this, <laughs> go so for it. Talk about Vietnam. Well, actually, first, if we could, if we could circle back uh, to the the fifties, um, throughout the McCarthyism era, um, yeah. and all of the kind of offshoots of it, there are these movements and kind of strains of anti-intellectualism um, yeah. across the U.S. So could you talk us through how such kind of ardent anti-intellectualism in the late 40s and into the early 1950s leads to this kind of expansion of higher education that you're, you're looking at in the 1950s? Please. Okay, well, there are a 
a bunch of things. There's no single answer. Okay. One is the GI Bill. All of a sudden, um, the federal government was afraid that after the war, there would be a recession, which is what happened after World War I, when all these soldiers came back and there weren't jobs for them. Uh, so what they did was they gave money to, to uh, veterans to go to college, to get them out of the job market. And that's what the GI Bill was there for. It was a, a sort of economic stimulus as it were, but of course it led to an expansion of higher education and changing um, the kinds of students who were going. Uh, these were older students. They were serious students. Many of them were married. You know, they weren't going to be dominated by fraternities who are, uh, you know, stuffing 20 co-eds into a telephone booth. Um, you know, they're, they're really there to get an education and begin to get some social mobility. So um, what do you have? You have... Uh, a transformation of the student body uh, already beginning in the late 40s and continuing. You know, it never went back. It just got bigger and bigger and bigger. At the same time, um, and we can talk about this with one word, Sputnik. All of a sudden, the first country that sends anything into outer space is the Russians. Oh my God, we're losing the Cold War. Why are we losing the Cold War? There must be something wrong with our education. Why, why aren't our rocket scientists doing all this? Well, of course, you know, our rocket scientists are, um, what's his name? Uh, Willie uh, Van der Van Braun. You know, they're German scientists. <laughs> you know, they're not our scientists, but anyhow, um, there's a uh, push to upgrade American education in science, but also in a social science, in critical languages, um, all kinds of pe people. My uh, ex-husband was one of them who was lured into learning Chinese. We've got to know our enemy, quote unquote. Uh, so um, they're also worried about the baby boomers oh my gosh, they're going to want to come to college and we don't have anybody to teach them. So all of a sudden, people are being offered money. Go to graduate school, please, please. Uh, they even were giving money to women. And this is a little factoid that I discovered was that um, the Ford Foundation, which was giving a lot of money it, it to uh, fund fellowships in higher education uh, through something called the Woodrow Wilson Fellowship Foundation um, was, uh, they didn't say this of course, but they were deliberately uh, trying to attract women into higher education. I was, I got a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship. I was really going to go to uh, teach uh, high school and I had applied to a graduate school of education. I even had a, um, a an internship at teaching, you know, I was going to be teaching in a, in a 
junior high school in a suburb outside Boston. And then my uh, the person I was writing my undergraduate senior thesis with uh, nominated me for one of these Woodrow Wilson fellowships. And I thought to myself, oh, if I get a fellowship, I'll go to graduate school. And I interviewed a lot of people you know, in my age cohort. And they had similar experiences, mainly sort of thinking, oh, well, gee, it's really nice to go to graduate school and there's money to go to graduate school. So I think I will. I mean, and people uh, didn't even know what field they were going into. I mean, you know, one guy said, well, I knew I wanted to go to graduate school. I just didn't know what field I would go in. And, um, you know, sort of like, 50, the top half of the uh, graduating classes, according to one survey uh, of undergraduate graduating classes, of that top 50, maybe 80% wanted to go to graduate school. It was really the in thing. But the amazing thing was, it was something like 50% of the bottom half also wanted to go to graduate school. You know, it was just enormous. The big expansion proportionately was in graduate education. Um, just uh, more than even than undergraduate. And uh, so anyhow, that is uh, what ended that anti-intellectualism was the sense uh, among other things that, you know, it's, it's patriotic. It's uh, helping national security. You know, we'll catch up to the Russians. We've got to have our own um, scientists, rocket scientists as well. So there's a lot of money and it really changes the sort of cultural view of national security. I mean, I, I was reading the uh, papers of a very well-known historian, uh, Richard Hofstadter, who's writing to one of his friends and says, you know, now we're, they want us for reasons of national security. Wow, aren't we lucky? You know, so that was, that was there was a change. And that's what it, I think, was the reason. Right. Wonderful. Um, we can we can jump forward again back to the 60s, if you'd like, and all of the changes that happened kind of in and around 1965 including Vietnam, as you okay. Well, the one thing that I sort of knew throughout the 60s was because of my ex-husband being in Chinese studies and I sort of was flailing around myself. So I, I kind of kept up with East Asian stuff and in fact learned Chinese when a little bit of Chinese when uh, he was being trained in Chinese language in Taiwan in 1962. So I, I kind of knew a little bit more about that part of the world than most people. Uh, and the amazing thing that I learned as I was working on this book was that nobody knew anything more. Nobody knew anything about Vietnam. It was not taught. I don't know that anybody outside of the American military was being learned Vietnamese. Um, there were probably no courses in it. It was, I mean, the reason had to do with the fact that Vietnam was a um, French colony. 
so that the scholarship on Vietnam was in French. And Americans, of course, are great in uh, languages. Um, as I forget the, the joke, but the punchline is something like, uh, who do you call uh, people who uh, can't, can only speak one language? And the answer is Americans. You know, yes. we, just, we just don't have a facility. So anyhow, uh, nobody much knew anything about Vietnam. Uh, there was a group of um, social scientists from Michigan State who were sent by, um, I'm not sure who funded them, but anyhow, they had a project in, in uh, what was then, was it French Indochina then, I think? No, it was the new Vietnam, right. Um, after 1954, after Vietnam became independent from France, and this group of social scientists go over to Saigon to train um, civil servants. And none of them can speak Vietnamese. And I think only one or two um, knew French. And that was it. And these were the leading American experts in, on Vietnam. That was it. Uh, there were a few other people who knew something. There were some anthropologists and there was a guy named Bernard Fall who was um, a, well, he wasn't even French. He, he was born in Vienna and then he was a Jew and he, my, his family moved to France. And then as a teenager, he uh, went into the French army and then came to the United States and started graduate school at Syracuse and decided he would write about the French military in Vietnam. And that's what he did his PhD thesis on, but he was unique. I mean, he was a, had been in the French military. And so he probably supplied all, much of what anybody knew. He was a great writer and, and just a brilliant guy. Um, he was the leading expert almost on Vietnam in the United States in the early fifties. There was another guy, um, he had worked for the uh, sort of foreign aid administration in the State Department who married, a v he was a, a black economist. He married a Vietnamese woman. He knew Vietnamese, you know, it was the, his in-laws, his family. Um, that was about it. And, um, you know, nobody knew anything. So, uh, but there people like me and my ex-husband and, you know, people who were kind of on the periphery of East Asian studies knew enough to know that what the Americans were doing was very, very bad. There were uh, journalists who were beginning to figure out what was happening. A very important uh, source of information was a man named uh, I.F. Stone, who was a journalist who put out something called IF Stones Weekly every week. And all he had was access to official American publications. And he had everything right. He knew exactly what was going on just from reading very carefully. So it was possible to learn what was happening, but it wasn't, but there wasn't a lot of knowledge. So, um, you know, Vietnam sort of sporadically got was on the front pages uh, 
you know, we knew there were American advisors there. Sometimes they were killed. Sometimes they were just giving bad advice. We knew that Americans were backing the dictator there, uh, uh, Diem. But um, it wasn't all consuming until 1965, when uh, Lyndon Johnson, who in the uh, 1964 election had been the peace candidate, had talked about Vietnam and said, we are not gonna send American boys to Vietnam when Vietnamese boys can do it themselves, you know. Uh, but then he began sending American boys to Vietnam. And um, uh, a lot of us got very upset. <clears throat> and what happened was that on, and most of the people who had knew about Vietnam or had been involved with the anti-war movement before that, the anti-nuclear war movement before that, um, had been protesting, uh, writing, signing petitions to Congress, things like that. But when Johnson began to regularly escalate the war, bombing North and then South Vietnam as well, um, a the American faculty members uh, really jump-started the anti-war movement. And they did this, I mean, we have the date, it's March, um, I think it's 24th, 1964, is the first big teach-in in American history. And it comes about through a group of um, social science professors, mainly, not entirely, but most of them are in economics or sociology or anthropology. Um, a few historians, uh, and they uh, get are getting together. And I was at that time a faculty wife at Princeton, but also a graduate student at Harvard at the same time. And I was involved in similar meetings at Princeton. Uh, what can we do? What can we do to stop this uh, dreadful escalation in Vietnam? And uh, they thought maybe we'll write some manifesto and publish it in the local paper. And then they are talking, and there are a group of them who are somewhat more radical, who had been very involved in this civil rights movement, uh, two professors in particular, in Boston and had been the co-chairs of the uh, most important direct action political uh, civil rights movement in the North, CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality. Um, and uh, they say, no, let's do something more dramatic. Why don't we hold a moratorium? We'll call off our classes and we will uh, devote our time to giving lectures and background about the war so that people have realize what's going on and what's wrong about it. Um, well, that uh, blew up because um, it was seen as how can you stop your classes? This is politicizing the university. We can't allow this. Uh, the president of the University of Michigan says, well, whatever we think about the war in Vietnam, you cannot uh, stop your uh, regular class, your uh, professional obligations, your educational obligations to your students. 
the governor of uh, Michigan at that time, George Romney, the father of Mitt Romney, uh, comes out with a similar statement. You know, this is not what uh, professors can do. The Michigan State Legislature passes a resolution against these professors uh, calling off their classes. So finally they pull back and they decide, okay, we're going to do a quote unquote teaching. They invented the word teaching, just like sit-in, of course, which was what the civil rights movement was doing. And, um, they decide they're going to, as one of them put it, uh, we won't have a moratorium based against the university. It's gonna be a moratorium against sleep. We're gonna have an all night session starting around eight o'clock going through till six in the morning. And they did. And the university was very pleased. Um, you know, this isn't attacking the university. Uh, they're not doing anything illegal. It's just fine. The university actually helped them open the classrooms, things like that. It was extremely successful. And all these professors um, at the same time contacted all their uh, colleagues at other schools to asking them to mount these same kinds of um, teach-ins. Uh, and there were, there were a variety of formats that people were using. I mean, some brought in outside speakers, uh, particularly people like Bernard Full or Robert Brown, this guy who had married a Vietnamese woman, or um, some of the people who had been at Michigan State. Uh, but a lot of them used homegrown talent um, my ex-husband was one of the speakers at the Princeton uh, teach-in because he could talk about uh, relations between China and Vietnam. He was a Chinese historian. Uh, other uh, schools uh, would have uh, two sides. They'd have debates, you know, somebody defending what the uh, government was doing and people against it. Uh, the Michigan people didn't, they, they claimed, well, the government has had plenty of opportunity to present their side of the story. We wanna give you the other one. But it was very, very important uh, that the uh, teach-ins and the, then uh, other people uh, who, uh, sort of taught themselves about what was going on in Vietnam, began to publish books. They began to publish uh, collections of articles and documents. They uh, published a magazine called Viet Report, uh, which came out, I think, monthly and uh, contained documents, contained articles, contained a lot of stuff translated from Vietnamese or from French. Um, and, uh, what we have is what one historian uh, called the pedagogical phase of the anti-war movement. The Ameri first on their own campuses, they were teaching their colleagues and their students what was wrong with Vietnam and why we should oppose uh, the American war there. Uh, and it expanded. I mean, you couldn't oppose something if you didn't know what it was that you know, that was wrong. So in a sense, 
this is a really, really a crucial point that I tried to make in the book, which was that uh, American campuses were the birthplace in uh, the of the anti-war movement because um, the draft then becomes uh, central, of course, but that doesn't happen really until draft calls become bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more students uh, are beginning to see that they can't avoid possibly being sent to Vietnam. And so you have uh, a student anti-war movement um, that is uh, kind of much more, what should we say, um, action-oriented than this early pedagogical phase. Right. So um, I don't I don't know if which one you want to go into first. Um, I could ask you about the student side of it, as you've just kind of explained the the pedagogical side and the the academic faculty kind of rallying together and starting or jump starting this movement. Or um, I could ask you about the other side of the aisle within the same academic faculty, how were kind of conservatives, uh, both within universities and outside of them reacting to this unrest in the 60s? Uh, with horror. <laughs> uh, they, uh, and this begins before 1965. This begins with something that was also front page news that actually haven't referred to, but is sort of central to what everybody thinks about the 60s and central politically to the backlash against it, which within which we are still living, I would say. And that is the Berkeley free speech movement. And um, I have a whole chapter on Berkeley. I mean, one of the, the things about this book is that I had to talk about stuff that's important, even though there is a lot of literature out there and you know, it's not, oh, we don't know about Berkeley. Of course we know about Berkeley. Um, Berkeley was uh, in many respects, well, it was probably the leading public university in the United States and quite possibly the leading university in the United States, public or private. I mean, the Dean of Harvard, McGeorge Bundy, uh, was said to have remarked, every day the sun shines in Berkeley is a dark day in Harvard. Um, any <laughs> Anyhow, of course, it, in a way, um, the uh, free speech movement at occurring at Berkeley uh, was a great benefit to Harvard because so many very eminent academics at Berkeley were so put off by what the students were doing. I mean, they were not deferential. They were demanding they were making demands on the university. I mean, my generation, I was the silent generation. We never expected anything from the university. You know, we were, we were very passive, but um, these 60s guys, they had been involved in the civil rights movement. They had been involved, the students had been involved in uh, try, uh, 
nonviolent direct action trying to get uh, employers in the Bay Area in San Francisco and Berkeley uh, to hire black workers. This was the thrust of the civil rights movement in the early 1960s was uh, to expand employment of blacks. You know, a number of uh, 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 industries in a number of retail, you know, drugstores didn't have black clerks, things like that. So um, uh, people would go in in supermarkets. I love this. The, the, the uh, Berkeley students in particular and other colleges from other colleges in the Bay Area as well would do shop-ins. They go to a supermarket, load up their um, cart with stuff and then leave it right in the, uh, you know, the checkout counter and walk out. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was quite a, a, a clever little uh, thing. And I guess they got a lot of uh, supermarkets to agree to hire black workers. Um, they had a sleep in, in hotels, which discriminated against uh, black people. Um, the big one uh, led to a number of arrests. So these students are not being deferential. They're not obeying the law, they're breaking the law. Um, and uh, the fact many rather conservative by our standards today, but they thought they were liberals, um, uh, felt that this was unconscionable, that these students should, uh, you know, use the regular channels. And there's a, a one anecdote that I will tell you that's in the book about a very, very well-known and very eminent um, sociologist named Seymour Martin Lipset, who in the beginning of the free speech movement, which uh, was a protest against Berkeley regulations that students could not do political action on the campus. And Berkeley was extremely repressive. I mean, we don't think of Berkeley as being repressive and the students didn't think of it, but this was um, really they, a student from the South a grad, who was a graduate student at Berkeley said, you know, he'd come from North Carolina and you know, the segregated schools and all the rest. And he was shocked at how repressive Berkeley was. It was very weird. It had to do with strange kind of California politics. But anyhow, um, Berkeley began to open up a bit during the early 60s. And um, the students began to get very involved, of course, in the civil rights movement, as I've just described it. And then the university cracked down on them and said, no, you can't recruit on campus at Berkeley uh, on this little strip of land that had, that Berkeley had originally, I forget whether it belonged to the city of Berkeley or the university, but the university said, you can't use this little strip of land on Telegraph Avenue, which had traditionally been the place where all the student political groups and the literary groups and the drama societies had tables to recruit students. And so they, they uh, the administration said, no, you can't do this. 
Um, and they said, well, we're going to do it anyhow. And that became the um, free speech movement. And um, it developed out of uh, finally, the students are sitting at these tables and uh, the Berkeley administration calls the police to remove them. And they put a former Berkeley student who's been recruiting for CORE, the civil rights uh, organization, into the police car. And all the other students in the area uh, surround it. And for something like 36 hours, I think, that police car cannot move with the one uh, former student in the back seat. And students and faculty members, and I guess even outside political activists, get on the top of the police car and make speeches. This is the beginning. And Seymour Martin Lipset, this famous sociologist, gets up on top of the car. Of course, the speeches are from all kinds of people who want more freedom. Um, but uh, Lipset and a number of other faculty members believe that the students, you know, should work through channels. They that he Seymour Martin Lipset knows how to make change. He's a famous sociologist. Students should follow his advice. And he says, you know, you make you work through channels. You you vote. You use politics. Um, and the students who are sitting around there say. But we can't vote because 18 year old voting hadn't uh, been part of the hadn't hadn't been legal until the 60s um, or the end of the 60s. And um, so then he says, well, but you, you know, what you're doing is illegal. You're, you, you know, you know, this is violent. What are you doing? And the students say, we're not violent. And he says, but but you're causing property damage. And they say, what property damage? They're just sitting around the car. Uh, he says, well, the roof of this police car, there's several, you know, hundreds, thousands of dollars of damage. And they say, you're on the roof of the police car. Now I interviewed Seymour uh, Martin Lipset, not for this book, for my earlier one. Uh, he was already not with us, but um, he uh, is a very, very large man. And as somebody noted, the largest person perhaps who stood on top of that police car. And so he simply just got down off the police car and walked away. And it was this experience. He wasn't the only one. There was another quote unquote, New York intellectual named Nathan Glazer, who experienced the same kind of thing, that somehow they had been involved in student politics back in the 1930s in the City College of New York at CCNY. And they understood everything and the students should listen to them. And the students didn't. And this was seen at, by them and they're very, very uh, prolific, brilliant men. Not all of them were men, there were a few women. Uh, people who then create a scenario about what was wrong with the students because you know, they couldn't very well say these students are 
um, not paying attention to us. Um, what they're, so they create this scenario of the students who are out of control, who are irrational. That was the language they used. They are not rational. And the university is above all an institution based on rationality. These students aren't being rational. Well, they were perfectly rational. They wanted their political rights. They wanted to be able to uh, talk about politics on campus. This is, you know, free speech already. Isn't this the, you know, what the country is founded on? And so actually the students won that battle, but ultimately they lost the war because um, what happened was that in 1966, uh, two years after the free speech movement, uh, there's a gentleman, a former film actor by the name of Ronald Reagan, who runs for governor of um, California. And Reagan runs against Berkeley. He, his campaign speeches are all about how awful Berkeley is, how Berkeley has been taken over by these, you know, sex fiends and dope fiends. And, um, and he's sort of quoting a more populist version of what these New York intellectuals are also saying, that you know the students are out of control and we shouldn't pay attention to what they want and we should crack down on them. Uh, and he's elected. And what's the first thing he does when he becomes governor? He fires the president of the University of California. And one of the first things that happens after he, uh, after Reagan is governor as well, is that when the state legislature uh, passes on the uh, budget for the state government and for state employees, and everybody's supposed to get a cost of living increase, they uh, put in a proviso against granting that um, uh, cost of living uh that cost of living um wage increase uh salary increase um is uh, uh is denied explicitly denied to faculty members at all the campuses of the university of california and all the campuses of the california state university system they're denied the automatic uh, cost of living increase. So this is the beginning of the backlash against the liberal university, against students, against um, what we now see. I mean, we're now living, what is it, 50 years later or more, with the uh, fact that just at the moment, um, these rather highly respected institutions become um, sort of, what would you say, uh, not inundated, but uh, become the targets of student unrest, that the student movement sort of grows from 1964, really, uh, and becomes increasingly uh, 
more, um, not violent, I don't want to say, but more uh, out of control in many respects, especially, especially when administrators bring police and other uh, law enforcement officials onto the campus. That's when you get, uh, you know, these television images of students throwing rocks at police. That's when you begin to get uh, television images of cops beating up uh, Columbia students. That's when um, the campus becomes a scene of massive unrest and the American public turns against it. You know, this is not what they wanted to see from these institutions. And at the same time, there is an economic crisis uh, fueled in large part by uh, Lyndon Johnson's refusal to uh, increase taxes to pay for the Vietnam War. So you're getting a bit of uh, an inflation here, which, you know, everything builds on everything else. And you're getting the end of this um, sort of unquestioning support, especially fiscal support, financial support from state legislatures, from philanthropists for uh, American higher education. That's beginning to come to an end and you get a, a regime of austerity. And what do, what do the administrations of American higher education do at that point? They increase tuition. So we're seeing the beginning of this uh, sort of debt burden that is hanging over American students. Uh, and it, you know, grows incrementally, but now it is, you know, positively life-changing and limiting people's opportunities. Uh, thank you very much. Um, you know, backlash against the 60s. This is where it begins. And that's the lost promise. It's the lost promise of a kind of universal democratic uh, system of higher education, affordable. Berk, you know, the University of California didn't charge tuition the city university, all the colleges in New York, the municipal colleges didn't charge tuition. They were all free. That's gone. And it, you know, it's the backlash against higher education that uh, does it against the 60s. So, so that would follow on nicely to talking about the um, Powell Memorandum, then wouldn't it? in 1971, if you would like to go into that a bit for us, Ellen. Okay, well, um, the backlash really sort of had several pieces. One, I think it's sort of Ronald Reagan mm -hmm. uh, riding the Berkeley free speech movement into the presidency. And Reagan certainly changes American political culture big time. Um, moves it quite far to the right. But at the same time, um, there's a movement within the business community, uh, within sort of among many rather right-wing business people uh, 
against, um, really against the New Deal, against sort of the large state. Um, they want to privatize um, uh, government institutions, you know, the thought of uh, free state-run college education. No, thank you. No. So um, what happens, and this is the so-called Powell Memo, which was written by a gentleman named Lewis Powell, Jr., and the name may be more familiar to um, lawyers than the rest of us. Uh, he was a Supreme Court justice uh, put on the Supreme Court, I think in 1973 or 74 um, by Richard Nixon. And Powell uh, was a very well-established um, member of the legal profession. I think he had been president of the American Bar Association at one point. He's a sort of upper class, uh, very respectable lawyer in Richmond, Virginia. Um, and I could go on and on about Powell, but uh, instead of talking about his uh, segregationist moment, we'll talk about the yeah, he uh, fought against Brown versus Board of Education on behalf of the state of Virginia. Yes. Good. Good. <laughs> we're, we're putting things together here. Mm. Anyhow, in 1971, he's asked by a very good friend of his uh, from Richmond, uh, who has just gotten a position as the chair of the Education Committee of the American Chamber of Commerce, which is the biggest business organization in the United States. And this guy uh, is asking Powell uh, for what kind of advice can he give him with regard to education? And so Powell produces this memo of some 30 pages or so in which he outlines a scenario for um, reorienting American political culture uh, because he feels that the most dangerous thing that is happening as a result of the 60s is that students are being brainwashed by their liberal professors to hate American business, to oppose the free enterprise system. They're being brainwashed with all of the stuff that's going on. And we've got to reorient American educational institutions and American political culture. And how do we do it? Well, of course, you've got to get rid of all those left-wing professors. Um, that's kind of hard to do because you need professors and schools are still expanding during these years. Um, so they didn't manage really to clean these people out. But let's make, uh, and I should have my Powell memo in front of me, alternative institutions. How about instead of relying on the nation's universities, which seem to be lost to the liberals, uh, let's uh, set up our own think tanks. Let's set up the American Enterprise Institution. Let's set up the Heritage Foundation. Uh, 
he doesn't name them by names, but they do get set up in the 1970s. Thank you, Lewis Powell. Let's um, begin to uh, fund students. Let's begin to fund uh, sort of right-wing libertarian professors. Um, you know, and so what is happening is that they're creating a counter-intellectual establishment that is devoted above all to free enterprises is, you know, pro-business. They're against regulation. They're, you know, um, Lewis Powell, I think he's from Virginia tobacco industry. Yeah, he's involved with that. Uh, you know, uh, we know that there were a lot, there was a lot of funding of academics uh, who, you know, sort of poo-pooed the idea that cigarettes cause cancer. Well, they lost that battle. Um, you know, save my generation from lung cancer mainly. Uh, you know, I was smoking two packs a day in the early 60s. And you can clean your lungs out after that. Uh, anyhow, um, uh, but um, it, what you have is, you know, an incredible backlash. And this Powell memo is sort of symbolic of that backlash. It's the symbolic scenario for what happened. And he says it's going to take a long time and a lot of money. And the business community had a long time and a lot of money, and they took advantage of it. So that's sort of the backlash that led to the lost promise. Um, and I, I wanted to ask kind of, you had just mentioned it a few minutes ago, um, kind of abstractly, but to ask you directly, could you explain what you mean by the phrase a democratic university, please? Sure. Um, well, to begin with, uh, they were segregated, certainly. And this is what the 60s was. It was, when we think about the 60s on campus, there was a movement to democratize the Amer American higher education. That meant bringing, becoming more inclusive, bringing in blacks, bringing in more women, uh, not just in the student body, but in the faculty. Now, um, the women made it. Uh, we still don't have quite the representation of African-Americans on American faculties that we should. Um, it's taking a long time and a lot of money. Um, but uh, what is also happening is that the curriculum is changing. You know, uh, when I was in college, history was about a powerful white men, um, basically. It's now about, you know, everything, everybody. Uh, I just was reading this morning the um, program for the annual meeting of the Organization of American Historians, which is a group I belong to. And um, they have panels on, you know, indigenous 
Native American boarding schools probably have three panels on that. They have panels on LBG, I don't have all the letters correctly, TQ, question mark, whatever. Um, many panels on the history of lesbians and gays and their inclusion and trans and, you know, just so many different um, ways of looking at human beings in the United States. Um, they have, they're looking at uh, different issues, of course, climate change. They're looking at, you know, and this is, this was what the 60s were doing. This is what the 60s brought us, was this opening up in many fields of the subjects of inquiry. And um, looking as well at the universities. You know, there's a whole field, I didn't even know it, but it's, it's a wonderful field. The books these people are writing are brilliant. On um, what's it called, science, technology, and some, and society studies, looking at the role of science and technology within um, the American uh, academic world. You know, there weren't uh, departments of science, technology, and society before the 60s. You know, this is all new. And this is what we mean by the democratization of American uh, universities. And um, they're pushing, and they're probably more successful in that than they were. So they were very important, as we see, in ending the Vietnam War, but it took a while. But this, uh, you know, uh, I, I did a lot of interviews and when I started interviewing women, I would get these incredible stories and there were oral histories and uh, sort of collections of memoirs about women who got PhDs from major universities, um, wanted to write about, especially in literary studies, I think, wanted to write about women writers. And one woman told me she wanted to write about Virginia Woolf. And her uh, advisor said, oh, you can't write about that. Why don't you write about Rudyard Kipling instead? Huh. You know, <laughs> so um, what, you know, it was just not to be believed. Uh, these guys who were running American departments, American who were uh, publishing the leading journals in their field, uh, simply felt that work about women by women, work about blacks by blacks, that wasn't history. That wasn't real literary criticism. You know, it had to be Rudyard Kipling. So times, you know, it really caused intellectual changes. Um, you know, what happened after that, we don't have to talk about, but anyhow, <laughs> anyhow, it was, Amazing, because, you know, just I'll tell, give you one little anecdote, and then I think I'm going to have to uh, sort of end this because my voice is going. But anyhow, um, when I was in, I guess, graduate school or maybe just senior um, in college, I was taking a German history class with their German historian at Harvard, and he's talking about the German Revolution of 1848, a very important moment in German history. And he's giving a whole bunch of sort of 
you know, because we believe in pluralism, we're going to give a lot of different kinds of explanations for what happened. And I remember he's giving all these different explanations, but one is really good. One is really brilliant and sort of explains almost everything. And then several years later, I, as a graduate student, I was actually teaching a class at Princeton and um, we read uh, Karl Marx's German Revolution. And I thought, oh my God, they didn't assign it at Harvard. They didn't, the leading German historian didn't credit this brilliant interpretation to Karl Marx. Um, you know, that was the 50s. It really was the dark ages, as well as the age of the silent, silent generation. Wow, that's, that's wild to think about a little bit. Um, if I may ask you one final question, because uh, I don't want to take up your whole day or your voice. Um, I, I was wondering what you think, um, and this is a question to kind of shift the conversation to more of your work widely, um, but including this one, of course. Um, in January 2021, the Presidential Commission for the 1776 report released their wonderful new ideas about how to reframe American history for the modern conservative movement that we have that really harkens back to a lot of the Reaganism um, that comes after the democratic university as you just described it. And in the report, communism is deliberately misrepresented um, and mis misinterpreted as decidedly kind of violent. And to quote it, it says, quote, communism's relentless anti-American, anti-Western and atheistic propaganda did inspire thousands and perhaps millions to reject and despise the principles of our founding and our government. While America and its allies eventually won the Cold War, this legacy of anti-Americanism is by no means entirely a memory, but still pervades much of academia and the intellectual and cultural spheres, end quote. So my question is what do you make of that representation of communism in a report that's designed to standardize history education? Um, and also secondly, like how would you respond to the intended implication that academics and intellectuals are, are like quote, still invoking communism violently in their teaching? Oh yeah, it's really terrible. Yes. Um, well, luckily we have a lot of politicians these days, uh, many of them in the state legislatures who are actively going to purge uh, the teaching of American history of such evil doctrines. I mean, communism is nothing compared to critical race theory mm -hmm. or um, you know, teaching about the fact that uh, after the Civil War, there were lots of lynchings in the South and the Ku Klux Klan, which was a terrorist organization in the correct sense of the term, uh, would go and burn churches and burn schools and kill teachers and kill, um, you know, uh, political, Black political leaders. Um, but, you know, that's going to be we're gonna save American school children from that. 
And so what, what we're seeing today is uh, this really scary bunch of measures. Uh, they're the uh, very important writers group calls them the education gag rules. Uh, and they're, uh, it's, it's, you know, not quite completely taken over education. There is pushback. And I'm actually working with a group, um, here's my little plug, called the African American Policy Forum that is seeking to mobilize faculty members specifically faculty members, to get their faculty senates. These are the sort of official groups of faculties on uh, American campuses to pass resolutions uh, opposing these uh, so-called gag rules um, and asking not just passing resolutions saying we support academic freedom, uh, you can't prevent uh, teachers from teaching the truth about the American past. Bad things have happened in the past. We, we would hope you can't make them better if you don't hear about their past. You know, you can't uh, mobilize in the present if you don't know what was in the past. Uh, but anyhow, um, this, these measures, these resolutions that the uh, American, African-American Policy Forum are uh, uh, sort of sponsoring uh, are designed not just to oppose these uh, specific uh, kind of anti-intellectual laws and really horrendously racist, basically, mm -hmm. um, measures, but also to uh, ask their uh, administrations to support uh, their resolution against these measures. And that's a very important step because it's going to show uh, the American people that uh, universities are standing up, that faculty members are taking collective action to push back against these really, um, what can we say, the teaching of ignorance, I guess is what we're looking at the uh, creation of an ignorant public. And that's, that's very scary for the future of American uh, democracy. Uh, if we can't have uh, citizens who understand where the United States has been and what the United States has to remain and has to uh, change as well. So, um, you know, all this, I guess, goes back to the 50s and 60s. And um, I just hope that people will realize how important it is to take action. I mean, you know, I'm a, a historian of um, academic freedom. Very, you know, that's very central to my work. And all I know is that in moments of crisis, the academic community has uh, buckled. It has not stood up as a whole, has not used its collective voice to say, no, we are not going to let the House Un-American Activities Committee during the McCarthy period, we're not going to let Senator McCarthy get people fired. We are not, and then in the 60s, uh, same thing. 
they, uh, many, many uh, faculty members, especially young faculty members, were just quietly dismissed. They were not dismissed as openly as they were during the McCarthy period. Um, you know, they were usually uh, junior faculty members who just didn't get tenure. And then because the academic community was expanding so much, and because there wasn't really a national system of uh, blacklisting the way there was in the 1960s, these people could get jobs anyhow. I mean, that's a big difference with regard to academic freedom between the 50s, where people were literally forced out of the academy, and the 60s, which that expansion enabled people who were on the left, even people, uh, there's one guy I know who was fired twice for leading a protest against ROTC, the reserve, the military um, uh, training on campus. He was fired twice and still got jobs. So that's the big difference is that expansion. Right, well, um, thank you so much for, for all of this. I have a million more questions, but I swear I won't take up the rest of your day. Um, I do want to really thank you for the opportunity to talk to you though. Your work has really influenced my own work and also my own politics a lot. And especially this book came out very serendipitously in December and um, I'm a union representative at UCL for the teaching, the teaching union and also the graduate student union. Um, and we're currently on strike. So reading this book has, has really kind of restored some, some energy to me um, in that fight. So thank you very much for your work. Oh, good. Well, I wish you luck with your strike. The Columbia people won. We went, mm -hmm. yeah, I live near there. We went up to watch them. They were amazing. So oh. good luck. Good. Thank you. Yeah, um, thank you so much, Ellen, for coming on. And I, I have to say, as a, as a friend and co-host of Bonn, uh, I don't think I've ever seen her so excited as when we got the news that uh, you'd be coming on the show. So um, uh, thank you. Thank you again for reaching out. Okay. Well, thank you, Simon. And thank you, Vaughn. It was, uh, I'm very interested in your project as well. So we'll stay in touch. Thank you so much. That means so much to me. Um, thank you again to Ellen. And thank you to my co-hosts, Vaughn and Toby. Um, from all of us here, um, take care and we'll see you in the near future. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.